Welcome to the Wondering Toward Wisdom podcast. Today, Joel and I examine more of the teaching style of Jesus and Socrates. We look specifically at the story of Jesus interacting with religious leaders after tossing some furniture about in the temple, in what seems like a really odd response to a question they asked, and how this forced a sort of self-revelation of those leaders. And we see how this is similar to Socrates' approach of simply using the claims of his interlocutors to expose something about them. Both Jesus and Socrates use a kind of indirect method to cause their students, both the willing and unwilling students, to confront their own failures, both intellectual and moral. Now, what might this mean for teaching virtue? Well, we're not sure if we can answer that question, but we think it's a really good question. Wondering Toward Wisdom is a part of the Tactical Faith Podcast Network. Email us at wondering at tacticalfaith.com or follow us on Twitter at wonderingwisdom. And in both those cases, the there's an underscore where the A or the O would be in wondering. Also check out tacticalfaith.com for more podcasts, for blogs, info about us, and opportunities to get involved with us or support us. Tactical Faith is a nonprofit whose goal is to encourage thoughtfulness and wisdom in the church. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, this is Jordan with Travis, as always, and we're continuing our discussion on teaching virtue today. In our last podcast, I mentioned about how you have to have a willing student. You, you can holler and say, this is what virtue looks like. You just need to see things this way. And if someone doesn't want to see it, it doesn't do any good. And this gets to um, a problem that I've experienced when I tell people that I have a doctorate in philosophy, specifically in ethics. And there's a look on people's face that says, what's the point in that? I, everyone knows how what's right and wrong or, or how to figure out what's right and wrong. And I'm a good person. So I, whatever you say, isn't going to change my mind about anything. And that's a problem because I know for myself, studying ethics helped me understand how much more room I had to grow with respect to my ethics. Um, I don't want to say that I was a horrible person, because I don't think I was a horrible person. But when I started studying ethics and digging into ethics, I started to see how much more there was to it than just doing, not breaking the law or, you know, not breaking these unwritten rules or, or even these written rules, um, or at least making sure I didn't get caught doing that, you know, all of the, it was a very simplistic understanding uh, that I had. But when I started to learn more about ethics, I realized it's not about rules as much about the kind of person you're becoming and the kind of person you're becoming is somewhat within your control. You, you have the ability to choose what you pay attention to. You have the ability to um, see things more clearly, to, to better grasp virtue, to grow in your understanding of virtue, which in, in the way you value virtue, it changes the way you, you not just do specific actions, but the way you see life and approach all of life. So a, a, a question that I, I wrestle with is, how do you help people see that they need to learn more about ethics? How, how do you help people realize that maybe they don't have all of the ethical answers? Because let me tell you, 
just saying point blank, I have a PhD in ethics and I can tell that you need help with your ethics gets you nowhere. Or trying to tell someone that they're, they're not a very ethical person gets you nowhere. There's got to be some other way to help people see that maybe they could, could use some help in how they think and approach ethics. Today, we're going we're gonna to look at both Socrates and Jesus doing some of that. Yes, there's, but there's, there's a whole bunch that you've, you've set up here that's really, really good and maybe a little bit confusing. Um, and I don't know if we want to dig into this, but I'm just, I'm just going to point them out so people have them in mind. So the idea that it's not about the rules, it's about becoming a certain person. I can imagine someone responding and saying, but how do you know what kind of person you are without the rules to, to set the standards? So isn't becoming a better person just mean you're better, you're, you're more likely to follow the rules that you're, you follow the rules more. Isn't that what it means to be a good person? Uh, and the answer is no. <laughs> yeah, no, or sort of, depending on what you mean by it. So, so one way to think of it is when, when you were a kid, your parents probably gave you certain rules that you don't abide by now. Um, or I not. not. <laughs> well, some you know, of them. Yeah, yeah. So you know, your, your parents might have said, um, and, and rightfully so, that, uh, you know, there are certain things you should never do because to a child that they don't understand nuance, they don't understand uh, particularities of situations that might lead to a different evaluation. And so when you get hung up on that rule, if, if the rule is what you think is what makes you good, you could end up doing something that's actually very harmful to another person or to yourself by abiding by that rule as opposed to understanding what the rule was intended to help you understand. So the rules are there not because they're they're everything, nor are they nothing. They're, they are helpful in that they, they give you a framework to, un, to work within, but there comes a point where you learn to understand what the rule is getting at, and you can apply that as opposed to having to focus on the rule. Yeah, a lot of the, a lot of times we make a distinction between principles and the the rules as applications, but I don't think I don't I think even Christianity is not necessarily about a set of rules. It's about it's about loving God and loving right. our neighbor. Now right. that manifests in particular kinds of activities usually because the problem with the idea of love is that our view of love is so sloppy and messy nowadays. Uh, it both, it, it, it can, it can be, you know, I can confuse just some sort of basic desire with love, but I can also, I can also believe that I love people that I in fact treat horribly and despise. So the word love does, I mean, even Christians have helped slaughter, undermine the meaning of love by, you know, loving people in Jesus's name, even though they treat, even though everything about their actions is hurtful to the other person and purposely hurtful because they hate them, not trying to help them hurtful like surgery, but trying to break them as in, you know, violence. Like, well, it, it's a little it, strong, but surgery with a chainsaw instead of a scalpel. Yeah. And, and the goal of sur the surgery is to take their head off, not <laughs> right. to solve the problem. But right. anyway, so, so th that's a, and, and I think what we're trying to get at here is a little bit is that Joel and I sort of sit in the virtue ethics realm we're we're sort of more interested in that that sort of thing, 
And that, so are so is Jesus. Yeah, and we're we're we sit in that realm because it's the right answer. We're correct about. I mean, we were having a conversation before this, and like everything I say is error and ignorance. But when you start talking about virtue ethics, <laughs> we're right. Uh, <laughs> if you're a utilitarian, grow up. Okay. So, um, sorry, I'm I'm about to teach an ethics classes this fall, and most everyone kind of leans utilitarian. There's a reason before that, but okay. So we're we're going to look at the methods and actually the, the method of exposing the need for some sort of change for some sort of development in ethics and so on and so forth. Like Joel said, um, usually going up to someone and saying, you're a bad person is ineffective in encouraging them toward greater virtue. Uh, and you could just, you you know this because you've probably had people say this to you before and it was ineffective in encouraging you to develop in <laughs> virtue, right? In fact, it probably led to the opposite result of, you know, you hating them and, and actually being degraded in, in your virtue to some extent. So we've talked about how virtue itself is difficult to understand, how the good is difficult to understand. It doesn't mean it, do, it doesn't play an important role in our lives. It plays perhaps the most, one of the most important roles or the important, most important role because the most important things in our lives are hard to define. Uh, if you can define it clearly, it's probably not nearly as important as the things you can't define clearly. Given that virtue is hard is hard to define, it's hard to talk about, it's hard to teach. But one of the most important things is to have a willing, if you're going to try to teach virtue, or if you're going to grow in virtue yourself, you have to be a willing student. You have to be someone who recognizes that there's a problem and desire to change. In fact, this is a big part of what repentance is about in the Christian life, right? Yeah. The first thing you need to do is you need to recognize there's a problem with you, right? If you can't recognize that there's a problem with you, then everything else will waste the time. You can do all the ma- you can, you can, you can do the little cross with the cliff and stuff. But if you don't believe there's a hole there that you're falling into, if you don't believe you in fact separated from God, in fact, if you believe that God is really a lot like you, in fact, you pretty much agree on, he pretty much agrees with you on everything then you don't need Jesus. You don't need, you don't need grace. You don't need any of this kind of stuff because you're fine. If there's a problem, then it's God's problem, not yours. So, I mean, that's obviously the, obviously part of it. So uh, to become a student, to develop and grow in ethics, we need to at first to be willing. And in order to be willing, we need to, we need to be willing to admit that there's something wrong with us. And again, it's very easy for us to say that there's something wrong with us. It's very difficult to, for us to believe that there's something, something wrong with us. And, and we should be clear that when we say there's something wrong, it doesn't mean that, that what we think is, is destructive. But when there's, we say there's something wrong, we, we're saying it, it's like we're not quite hitting the bullseye as an archer. Like we might, we might even be close, but, but to understand that you're not hitting the bullseye means that you're, there's something not quite right. Yeah. And I, yeah, th- this is important because if, if you begin to believe that you're fundamentally evil, that actually becomes an excuse to maintain, to, right. to just remain evil because this is what I am. And this was the sophist view is that not that we're evil because I don't really believe in that necessarily. I mean, they, they did have a, a way of understanding it. But their belief was that we're fundamentally mortal creatures and our goal is to get more stuff. Ethics is a means of maintaining civilization and society. And therefore, we act according to 
the 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 precepts or the principles of justice so that civilization might function, but our fulfillment is found elsewhere. And if and our attitude tends to be like that, and our view that we're evil tends to be the idea that what we fundamentally are and our desires fundamentally are aimed towards selfish, uh, evil things, and that we have to get along with God so that we can continue to survive for eternity and get some sort of reward. That's a wrong way of viewing it. In the beginning, God created, and he looked upon humans and said, very good. So we are fundamentally arise out of the very good. Mm-hmm. But there's something broken about us. There's something off about us. But that doesn't mean we're fundamentally evil. Like even the doctrine of, of total depravity doesn't argue that your your very essence is evil, even though we try to talk about sin nature. I don't, I don't like the language of sin nature because it sounds like what we naturally are are sinful, not that what we naturally are is being destroyed by sin. Yeah. That's, that's a, those are different mean, like sin is killing us. It's not, it's not what is good. For, it doesn't fulfill us. It kills us. And so anyway, there's, that's, that's just complicated. It depends on what people are, how people are using these terms or whatever. But what Joel's saying is right. The Greek word for sin is hamartia, which means to miss the mark. You're shooting at a, at a, at a goal. You might, you might've hit the, you know, you're an archer shooting at, a target, you may have hit the target somewhere, but you didn't hit the bullseye. That's not, you're not being, you're not aiming at what you're supposed to, you're supposed to hit. Um, and, and it's also one of those things that as you get, like you might struggle to really see the target. And as you get more clear on the target, you get closer to the bullseye, but then you can see the target better and you keep getting closer. And so as you improve, you might realize that I still have more room to grow, but you also can look back and say, wow, I'm a much better shot than I was three years ago yeah. or whatever. Um, yeah, there's but, a perpetual growth. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas, whereas if, if you tend to focus on rules, it's an on-off switch. Right. Did you break the rule or not? Because that's the only question. And so there's no room for growth. There's either you fail in the rule or you did it right. So there's either there's there's two things. You're sinful or you're perfect. That's kind well, of the idea. On, on, yeah, on, on each two, action. On, yeah, on each particular action, you either did it perfect or you or you failed at it. Whereas Harmartia says, well, you can you can get better, you can get better, you can you can grow. It's not an on-off switch, and that on-off switch idea, I think, has encouraged a lot of people to look at it as I don't have enough motivation to do the right thing, so I'm just stuck. No, no, no. Just take the next step. What what is it uh, that uh, Frozen Two? Just just do the next right thing. I think it's the song, right? Just, just look, if, if, if that, if you hate that person and you can't stand them, just do what, say a prayer for them, do a kind act for them, not expecting it in the end just do, just do some small thing for them. And, and as you do it, you begin to grow, you'll begin to take steps toward that. And there's a little Aristotle in there, habituate yourself toward doing the right thing. Instead of saying, well, I just, sorry, I just can't do it. I, the Holy Spirit's going to have to just change me because I can't do it. And, and part of the problem is that I think because so many people buy into the, the rule stuff is, is why when someone says you've got room to grow, we, we, what we hear when someone says that is you're a bad person. Yeah. That, that does, isn't necessarily the same thing as we've been trying to say. But because that's what people hear, that's what that's what I hear when someone's like, "You've got room to grow." Is like, 
you know, I, I have a tendency to hear that as, wow, you're a failure or wow, you're, 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 you, you know, because we, because our, our society has kind of made that as a nice way of saying that you're a failure is that you've have room to grow. Yeah. We can and, be polite and insulting at the same time, like right. bless your heart in the South. <laughs> yeah. And, and so given how things are that, that, that's not a, an, an effective way to help someone grow. Um, and so what are some ways that are effective to help someone grow? Well, we're, we're getting there. <laughs> yeah. This has been a long, a long preface, but let's get there. So I just wanted to get a little bit out of the way to, to help people kind of understand why, why the idea of virtue and why the idea of homartia, that, that Greek word, why it is more meaningful than the, than the simple, you did it right or you failed. The, the point is you're never going to do it perfectly. Maybe. Maybe when Christ returns and transforms us, maybe we will understand what it means to, without the thorns and thistles tearing us down, to actually do the right thing. Uh, uh, I think that's what's being promised, but maybe even then there's going to be room for growth, right? Maybe we'll be growing because it's it's fun to actually become better at something. Mm-hmm. I think that's, but who knows? I don't, I don't know what that's going to be like. Um, but let's let's go. So I want to go to this story. I'm, I'm, I'm prepping for some, some teaching in, in the church. Um, and if you're listening to this podcast, yes, they're, they're, they're going to allow me to teach in the church. So they probably should fire the, the guy in charge there. But um, in doing it, I was, I was looking through some of these passages and, and y'all know Plato. I mean, if you, if you know anything about Plato, you realize Socrates has a particular art where he makes the other person show how ignorant they are themselves by asking them questions. He never comes out and says, you're ignorant. He says, he says about himself that he's ignorant. In the apology, one of the most famous claims that he makes is that, I don't know anything, All right? This is Socrates at the end of his life, being one of the most influential philosophers in history, claims, yeah, I, don't, I don't really know anything. Now, if you read Plato according to how scholars tell you to read him, and that is the early Plato, middle Plato, late Plato, then... Socrates saying that in the Apology doesn't mean anything, and Plato is stupid, and you should stop reading them that way because all the scholars are wrong. And I can give you articles showing how wrong they are and how it's based on stupid assumptions and so on and so forth. But that he didn't write that other people wrote. That other people wrote. Um, but if you're reading, if you if you hear the phrase early Plato, middle Plato, late Plato, stop listening because whatever's coming next is stupid. Unless they're tearing that down. Sorry, there's a little. Uh, uh, there's a little, uh, I have, I have some expertise in Plato arrogance there. So take what I'm saying with a grain of salt, but I'm right. So I was looking at Mark uh, 11 because I'm, I'm going to do this series. I'm going to talk about, I'm starting off with the idea of the fig tree. Um, and there's this situation. I just, it's just a great example of Jesus doing something sort of like how Socrates does it. So Socrates is very good at making people expose their own ignorance by simply asking them questions. Socrates does this frequently, but Jesus does this in Mark chapter 11, uh, starting in verse 27. And he does it in a really weird way. And I didn't realize this till I read this closely. And that's a cool thing about reading the Bible is there's a whole bunch of depth there that a lot of people aren't catching. But let me give background on Mark 11. So Mark 11 is the triumphal entry. And then Jesus has this weird situation where he curses a fig tree. Then he goes into Jerusalem and he cleanses the temple. And if you rec- if you remember the cleansing the temple part, if you know anything about it, it's 
the court of the Gentiles is where they're selling all, where the money changes are and they're selling all the, you know, animals and so on and so forth. But by the way, the selling of animals and stuff like that, that Jesus didn't have a problem with that. He had a problem with, with it being in the court of the Gentiles. He might've had an issue with the amount that it was costing, but people traveled long distances. They couldn't bring animals for sacrifice. And so they brought money, bought an animal there, sacrificed it. It, it was a reasonable setup. Um, but he didn't like that it was that was in the court of the Gentiles. And so he causes all this problem. That when he comes back the next day to Jerusalem, I think it's the next day, doesn't really say in Mark, the people come up to him and say, who do you think you are? Now, they, they ask him in a different way, but they're like, he just, he just went to the temple, was tossing things around, yelling at people. Who do you think you are? But they say it in a in a learned way. They say, "By what authority do you do you, do you do these things?" And Jesus. So let me just, let me just read this. This is from the ESV. If you don't like the ESV, I don't care. If it's good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me. So, <laughs> so this is Mark starting Mark eleven starting in verse twenty seven. I'm just going to read it. Uh, and they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him. By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. All right. Jesus sounds like he's being a jerk. Just like with the fig tree. He sounds like he's just being a jerk. But that's not as what that's not what's taking place. So let's give a little background here. So he just got done getting mad at them for cleaning out. Uh, or so He was mad at he, he was angry at them for filling the court of the Gentiles where the Gentiles, that's all the farther they could go to worship God. They filled that up with money changers. So if you're a Gentile who wants to come in and worship Yahweh, you got pigeons and money changers all hanging around you while you're trying to worship. That's it's almost as bad as wearing a mask in church. Or or having your young children with you in church. That's a joke. Okay. So uh so Jesus is mad because the the Jewish leaders don't care about the Gentile converts. That's basically what's, what's being said. Right. Now, I don't know if y'all know what John's baptism was. John the Baptist was a guy who ate bugs and honey and baptized people. Why is it? Why was John baptizing? Y'all know what baptism stood for? Baptism was the ritual cleansing that Gentiles did when they became converts to Judaism. Now there's there's different there's the God fearing and the co- actual converts. One you got you got to get parts of yourself cut off. The other one you don't need to. Um, but in one of those you have to go through this ritual cleansing because Gentiles are dirty folk. And so uh, John, but John wasn't baptizing Gentiles. He was baptizing Jews. Yep. So what's it? What's he saying? Well, he's saying you know y'all need to get your stuff together as well. You're not really any better off than the Gentiles. You're a lot like the Gentile nations, in fact, which by the way, in first Samuel eight, they were asking to become like, so, uh, John's baptism was, would be really offensive, 
particularly if you're a religious leader, you're like, I don't need to get baptized. And he's like, well, John then, you know, says a bunch of insults to them. And so, uh, <laughs> and he lost his head over it, but, and yeah, I mean, in more ways than one. So, uh, so very, very frustrated. So, so that's the background, right? Jesus just got done cleansing the, the Gentile part of the temple. And then he brings up John's baptism, which is basically treating all Jews like they're Gentiles. Right. There's a lot yep. of, so this is the background of what's going on here. And so the, the religious leaders didn't much care for John. I mean, he's kind of crazy anyway. And so he says, they ask him, who do you think you are? Right. What's, what authority are you, are you doing this stuff? And Jesus says, well, let me ask you, what was John's authority? Now you'd think Jesus would turn to them and say, by what authority are you doing? Are you doing what you do? Right. That's like, I'm rubber, you're glue, or some nonsense like that, right? Why didn't Jesus just say, well, what authority are you doing? It Your stuff. Well, he doesn't say that. He says, John's authority. And then they say, well, we don't know. And he says, well, I'm not going to tell you. Then I'm not going to tell you either, right? So it sounds like, sounds like an elementary school kid. But look at what happens when he does this, okay? So he asked them by what authority. He, 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 he sort of deflects to John's baptism for some reason, it seems like. And they, they discuss amongst themselves. And they say, if we say it's from heaven, that is, if God's authority is, the John's acting by God's authority, then uh, it'll make us look like we got it wrong and right. that we had to change our minds and it'll bring down our respect and our own authority. That'll make us look like we're not as good. But if we say from man, well, the people held John to be a prophet and a martyred prophet at that. So they highly valued him. So for them to say it's from man, it'll, it could also undermine their election ability, their ability to get reelected or whatever it is that they do then. Right. Either way, either answer could undermine their, their opportunity to maintain their power. So they say, we don't know. And Jesus says, well, I'm not going to tell you what my authority is. Now think about what Jesus did there. He just exposed their authority. And what is their authority? What is the authority by which they live, by which they, they carry out their actions? Trying to stay in power. Yeah. It's neither God nor the truth, which those two seem to be closely aligned, nor concern for the people, nor concern for the Gentiles, obviously. It has nothing to do with being a priestly nation. It has nothing to do with being good and following God. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with maintaining their authority and maintaining their own power. Je they ask Jesus, who do you think you are? And he says, and he, in a very indirect way, says, I'm going to show them who you are. And he does this by asking this question about John the Baptist. And he exposes to them. And by the way, them saying, we don't know, undermines their authority. Right. But, so, I mean, like but, Jesus but, is a genius. Yeah, and, and it's worth noting, they chose that answer because it was the least undermining of the possible answers. Yes, it was the most political answer they could give, and yet they were nevertheless undermined by it. Right. I mean, I'm sorry, but this sounds like if you read it on one surface, it sounds like Jesus is being a petulant little elementary school kid. But then you <laughs> look a little bit closer and you're like, holy blast, look what he just did. And he also exposed that they weren't asking the question because they wanted to know that they were seeking truth. They were looking for a way to undermine Jesus. Yes. And so 
And so Jesus is basically saying, I'm not going to, if, if you're not searching for truth, why should I give you something that you're going to misuse? Yes. You will take whatever answer I give you and you will find a way to use it for your own power. I will not grant you that. So there's two elements there that are that are absolutely essential to what's going on with Jesus trying to expose to them their failure. One is he causes them to expose their own failure. The second is he refuses to give them something that they can use to maintain their hamartia, to maintain their their vicious way of life. So you get that? And that was that, that last point was real brief because Joel just brought it up. But there seems to be two things. He doesn't come in and say, look, y'all are bad people, even though he sort of seemed to do that in the Pericope right before that, where he started throwing things around saying they're going to turn it into a den of robbers. Right. But but he does do it here. He causes them, them to expose themselves and causes and doesn't give them ways to maintain their vicious. He doesn't give them the capacity to maintain their vicious life. Or give them information that would help them. The problem is, here's the problem. These people killed Jesus within a few days. Yep. He didn't, he didn't make them, he didn't make them better. Right? Like, well, well, I mean, what, what can happen when, when, you know, in a sense, Jesus and Socrates does this too, but Jesus put a mirror in front of them and showed them who they are. And people will respond one of two ways, usually to that one. They'll be like, Oh my goodness. I can't believe that's me and repent and want to make things different. Or they'll get angry at the mirror and want to demolish the mirror and make sure no one shows them who they are again. That's a very good analogy because one of the points that that uh, that one of the arguments of Socrates is essentially that philosophy serves as a kind of mirror, and that's what Socrates does. He 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 almost never makes an argument. All he does is say, "Okay, this is the phrase you're saying. This is what you say it is. All right, let's let's show you what you're saying when you say that. Let me show the implications. Right? It's reductio ad absurdum. All these sorts of things are going on, um, where you take a claim that someone makes and you show how it leads to something ridiculous." but it's based on their claim. I'm not teaching them. Any, I'm not saying anything except what they're saying. And Jesus does this, but he, but I mean, there's ways of doing it. Either, either you say what they're saying and show that to them, or you make them say it themselves. But here's the thing. And we're, we're going to, we're going to end with this, but the, the point is we're showing how there's a kind of indirect way of speaking when you're trying to expose something, when you're trying to teach ethics, there's a kind of indirect, so the best ethical teachers I think are those who don't just come out and say, you need to stop being bad in this way and start being good in this way. There's a sort of an indirect way of exposing. And what we're talking about here so far is simply the unwilling student and how there is no, there's no guaranteed method of training someone to become a more virtuous person. It's just not possible. But you will when you run into an unwilling student, what do you do? Well, G, most of Jesus's students were unwilling. Mm-hmm. Most of the people that John the Baptist interacted with were, were unwilling. Most of the prophets were dealing with unwilling students. God 
has to deal with unwilling students all the time. Joel and I are practiced at being unwilling students. Or mm-hmm. at least I am. I don't, yeah. I don't want to speak for Joel. He's got I'll room to grow, though. Let's just let's just say. It. <laughs> uh, so, um, I have a lot of room to speak. I'm kind of short. How, how does one deal with an unwilling student? Well, you don't. You don't just come in and say you're an idiot. You start off by, by. I mean, it seems that you you, you follow in Jesus and Socrates' footsteps. You probably should say, "What would Jesus do?" If I say, "What would Socrates do?" Then people get mad. But you this sort of indirect way of be of serving as a mirror really is it because people can't, you can't tell someone they're bad. They have to see for themselves that they are. Mm-hmm. And at least adults generally don't like that. So you, you show them, you show them the, 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 the way that they think and so on and so forth. And this is what Jesus does in Mark 11. Uh, just this little passage, 20, 27 through 33, just absolutely brilliant. What he does um, and that's what Socrates is doing constantly. And if you're lucky, the person will, their eyes will be opened and they'll desire to change. So the question is after that, what does training someone in virtue then look like? Or maybe another question would be, is there such thing as a willing student? Cause these are, this is a, dramatically, un- they're not just an unwilling student, they despise the teacher, right? Right. right. Uh, so maybe the next thing we need to talk about is what does a willing student look like and if there is such a thing? Yeah. yeah. I mean, because because I think, you know, in, when, when, we talk, when I talked about the responses about, you know, being driven to repentance and, or, you know, wanting the mirror to be removed, um, the being driven to repentance if the student is anything like me, the question isn't always, how do I get on the right path? It's, okay, how little can I get away with changing and be okay? Which, right. which then I need, I need some, a, a teacher to come in and show me again that, no, you're, you're, you're seeing the wrong thing. You're thinking about it the wrong way. You're, 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 you're talking about apples and work when, when really it's oranges or, something even more dramatically different so we're going to explore that next and we'll see where we end up but we're done for today i'm travis i'm joel thanks for listening have a great day Mm -hmm.